You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as... The Daily Meditation Podcast, The Accidental Creative, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, all one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners, and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. Hey there, Monster Talkers. Quick warning, the topic for this episode is necrophilia. Our guest is psychologist Dr. Brian Sharpless, who's releasing his first non-academic book in October, and it's called Monsters on the Couch, and it's all about the kinds of psychological maladies and health situations that might be behind some of our most famous monster archetypes. There's no way to cover this topic properly without discussing topics that are taboo, controversial, perhaps evocative of disgust, and perhaps even disturbing for other reasons to audience members. So if you're squeamish or easily offended by conversations that tread on culturally sensitive matters around the dead and around sexuality, this could be an episode you should skip. We've got hundreds of episodes that don't have frank and explicit conversations around the topics of sexual relations with corpses, so you can always check those out instead over at our Patreon site or at monstertalk.org. You've been warned. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. One more time, as I said in the pre-credits, this episode is about necrophilia, and it's a conversation we enjoyed having, but it's not a topic everyone would like. So, the Patreon edition of this episode is even more explicit than the free feed, and it's longer, so I believe we discuss the topic with frankness with light humor, without, with, well, hopefully without being insensitive to the victims, not the corpses so much as the family and friends of the deceased. And when we laugh during this episode, we're not laughing at the dead or at the acts that are being performed. We're doing that nervous laughter people sometimes do when they're treading through a field of cultural landmines. 
So I hope we did a good job here. I'm just putting this warning out up front for a reason. That said, Brian's writing on this topic is thoughtful and informed, and I'm really looking forward with great anticipation to reading his full book because it looks like a treat. So with all that front matter explained, let's get to the Monster Talk. That's why you're here. So your new book, Monsters on the Couch, The Real Psychological Disorders Behind Your Favorite Horror Movies. What a fantastic topic. Mm -hmm. And Thank you. You make it sound better with an Australian accent. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But we're going to be discussing one topic in particular, and that's necrophilia. We haven't really discussed that on the show before. So welcome to the show. I'm shocked. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I got to thinking about that. I don't, I don't think it's come up. I mean, the closest I think we've come to it is I've hinted that I was doing research on um, Elena and uh, Tansler, the the – Oh, the Key West necrophile. The Key West necrophile, oh, yeah. Okay. And okay, I, I, yeah. I got the book uh, Undying Love, which is, I guess, probably the—I don't know if it's the definitive, but it's it's probably one of the most well-researched ones I've seen. Uh, books you about the topic. Read that. And, and then we went. I went to. Uh, it was it twenty nineteen. It was right before the pandemic. I went uh, to Key West for a Christmas party, yes. and of course, mm-hmm. I went uh, to see Robert the Doll. And obviously, we shoplifted mm-hmm. there, so we cursed the country. That's sorry about oh, that. Obviously, yeah. yeah and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> my wife accidentally picked up some stickers that she didn't pay for. We 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 dropped plenty of cash. I'm sure they're fine. But uh, she, right after that, the the whole country was cursed, and we feel personally responsible. Mm-hmm. But we, uh, He's still feeling a lot of guilt. <laughs> still a little, a little guilt. But we also went to the cemetery and, uh, you know, I just – that sort of mm. knowing that she's buried there somewhere, but it's been hidden to stop further molestations of the dead, if you yeah. will. So, mm. Yeah. It, it's mm. an interesting case. Out of scope for this, but uh, certainly uh, it reminded me of this. And I saw you had at least one footnote about it. Oh, yeah. Famous case. To start with, let's ask a question that you don't hear every day. You don't ask every day. What is necrophilia? And it seems like it's a little bit more complicated than it first seems. <laughs> well, it's uh, certainly one of the darker recesses of human sexuality. Um, mm. The word literally means, uh, necros means dead body or corpse, and philia means friendship or love. So love of corpses, um, which is pretty strange because if you've ever read Aristotle, he talks a lot about different types of love, and philia is a love that's indicated by friendship and really getting along well. So it presumes mm. mutual feelings, which you can't really have with a corpse. So you get the love that dare not mm. speak its name, and then you get the love that uh, at least one of the people involved can't speak their name. <laughs> not not without a arrest, yes. That's right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different subtypes of it. So everybody sort of has their own classification. I broke it down into eight eight different subtypes. But, we, yeah. You know, I don't yeah. think I ever heard the term before. Not the, Let me tell you what the term is in just a second. It's not necrophilia. But I don't think I'd ever heard this term before the Internet and maybe even before, like, 2010. But the concept mm-hmm. of uh, kink shaming, like, don't kink shame. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't, don't yeah. get down on people about their sexual differences. Because yeah. and mm-hmm. I think... In general, that's a healthy idea because, you know, maybe people have relatively harmless things that they fetishize or whatever and, you know, whatever. And if if they're maybe now more than ever, you can find people through Internet tools and connect with people who have similar feelings. But this is maybe... I don't really mind kink shaming necrophiles. Does that make me a bad person? (laughs) (laughs) All of that. It's a uh, tough behavior. It's that lack of consent. I mean, maybe uh, if it was in the will, you know. <laughs> but, well, strangely enough, there were people who have proposed that. <laughs> I'm, really? I'm not joking either. No, no, I, uh, yeah. I'm sure you're not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Um, so strangely enough, uh, there was a member of the Swedish Liberal Party who um, came out and said it should be legal if you obtain consent before death. Like the purely rational, legalistic side. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, the no, 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 this gross side says, no, don't do that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a tough one. You brought up informed consent, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I think psychology and psychiatry get a bad rap for being really moralistic, but I, that hasn't been my experience. Really, to be a disorder, you have to meet certain symptom thresholds. But the biggest piece is you cannot, even if somebody does something, if they don't have clinically significant distress, meaning they're bothered by it, they're worried what it means for their physical or mental health, or if they don't have clinically significant interference, so it's interfering with one or more of the functions that the person should be able to do, and including staying out of jail. You know, you really need one of those two things to, for it to be a disorder. But if somebody like just gets turned on by black boots or, you know, uh, any any other number of fetishes, uh, it's really not gonna be diagnosable. So it could, it's just kind of a, a, a fetish, but not a fetishistic disorder, for instance. What's the difference between normal and pathological sex? And I imagine that's a kind of a broad question, but what, what makes it a pathology? Um, what makes it a pathology, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists use two criteria. For anything to be a disorder, you have to meet certain symptom thresholds, but you also have to meet uh, what we call clinically significant distress or clinically significant impairment. So the distress piece is you're upset by it, it freaks you out, you're worried what it means for your physical or mental health. And then the interference piece is more, um, it's disrupting your normal life function. So it's making you not as good a parent, not a good son, not a good worker, or it's, you know, maybe causing you to be incarcerated. So those are the two criteria for any disorder. With sexual disorders, people usually throw in informed consent, right? Because that's kind of important. Mm -hmm. uh, certain uh, people and things cannot give informed consent. So children can't give informed consent. Uh, animals can't give informed consent. Mm -hmm. And I would argue corpses can't give informed consent. If exactly. I would yes. agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure. I'm that glad we're on the same page of this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's important for us to agree on that. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that with some of the cases we'll talk about uh, soon that we can go into that a bit more. But uh, I thought we could start by talking a bit about necrophilia in fantasy because you kind of break down and talk about fantasizers and role players. I was curious to hear about casket sex. I wasn't familiar with that. Uh, so yes. could you tell us a little bit, of, a bit about those things and also the escalation that can sometimes happen? Sure. Well, there are many classifications of necrophilia. So I, I break it down into eight. Um, the first group would be necrophiles who do not have any physical contact with corpses. And then the second group would be the people who do. So sort of at the lowest level of the necrophilia ladder, if there is such a thing, <laughs> are, would be uh, fantasizers. So these are people that only engage in necrophilia of the mind. And this may involve uh, use of pornography. It might in involve fantasy with or without masturbation. But they're not in actually directly involved with any corpses or really any people. Um, and strangely enough, you could still get, um, a, a diagnosis, not of necrophilia, but of what we call para paraphilia, not otherwise specified, which would capture necrophilia, even just with fantasy, if you were troubled enough by the fact that you're having these recurrent fantasies about necrophilia. So you could still get a disorder, sure. uh, there. Mm -hmm. Then we've got role players, uh, sometimes called casket sex. And these are people who, again, don't have contact with corpses, but they act as if, their partner was deceased. So this could involve elaborate makeup. It could involve taking ice baths before the, uh, you know, the sexual act. Uh, it could involve making up the bedroom to look like a morgue or actually using caskets. I don't know if this is true. You have to take things the Marquis de Sade writes about with a grain of salt. He was, uh, he yeah. had quite a penchant for <laughs> literary exaggeration, but he <laughs> These are people more concerned with cold, dead hands than the NRA. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, boy. That's terrible. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, Marquis de Sade claims that prior to the French Revolution, there were brothels in Paris that would cater to this. Um, it, I don't know if that's true, but I have located articles today of um, of uh, sex workers who will report catering to clients with this particular um, interest, shall we say. Mm. Oh, so, oh, 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 I see. The, the brothels were catering to the role players slash fantasizer. Exactly. Okay, I thought you meant that they were catering to the people who wanted to have sex with dead people, in which case I'm thinking, that corpse better have my money. The yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, want well, we did it. We money. did it. 
We did a show some time ago on the Grand Guignol. Oh, yeah. Uh, the theater in uh, Paris. And it just sounds to me like this is the kind of thing that could have gone on in, in Paris in previous centuries. You think, like, I do. I mean, well, I mean, it could go on anywhere. I mean, that's the funny thing. The, in, the internet has allowed us to see sort of the scope and breadth of people's uh, interests in, way, <laughs> in ways that were not previously made public. Oh my god, mm. there's a Facebook group for everything, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the escalation as well? Yeah, so you, it doesn't always necessarily have to escalate, but I mean, with as with most behaviors, they they tend to get stronger over time. So, mm-hmm. for some people, they just don't stay in the realm of fantasy, but they, uh, shall we say, enter the cemetery of reality. Mm-hmm. And so they might um, do other things. They might start securing jobs where they have ready access to corpses, so EMTs you know, mm. mortuary attendants, things like that. And some people might be at that level where they're okay just touching corpses. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it can escalate a bit further, though. Um, the next uh, category I would talk about it would be called fetishistic necrophiles. So they just don't touch bodies, but remove mm-hmm. pieces from them and take them home with them. So they might fashion hair into amulets. There are cases of people um, excising certain uh, body parts and, and uh, mummifying them and things like that. Um, then you've got um, a strange... Yeah, <laughs> that's a strange behavior. It's similar to serial killers sort of taking trophies. Trophies, they I was sort thinking of in- that. Involve it mm-hmm. in their sexual repertoire. Ooh. Well, you, you you talk about it a little bit. I mean, actually, you 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 explicitly mention him by name, and then talk about a couple of films that are based on him or inspired by him. But Ed Gein seems to be right in the heart of all this. Uh yes, we don't know if he ever had sex with corpses. I think somebody asked him once; he denied it. But he definitely would pilfer body parts uh, of yeah. the deceased. Yeah, in creepy ways. Um, I'm not sure how dark we want to get on monster talk, but well, you yeah, can, let, uh, let's just say that many of the practices you discuss about uh, preserving and retrieving parts and making amulets and furniture uh, all present mm-hmm. in that weird, weird case. We've talked about it a little bit before. Uh, we did oh, a, yeah. a, a, a debate on a true story about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, and, and it's it, it, anyway. It's an interesting. I, this is not really a true crime show, but in that particular case, it's been such a huge inspiration to so many horror filmmakers and writers that, uh, I, you know, it's Psycho probably, and- yeah, that, and this is right mm-hmm. at the heart of it. It's, this is all right there. I mean, again, as you say, we don't know if he was literally having sex with corpses, but he definitely murdered at least one person, definitely rifled through graves, definitely made trophies and amulets and mm-hmm. furniture out of the dead. Um, I he would think, eat soup out of a human skull. From yeah, I was about to say, I think yeah. he also ate some of the body parts, if I remember. I think <laughs> there was something cooking on the stove when they busted him, if I remember yeah. correctly. Although, you know, it's one of those cases that draws a lot of lore to it uh, as much as right. fact. So. Yeah, Wisconsin has something with uh, cannibals and necrophilia. It's very strange. It's, it's a got cold Dahmer. and lonely place. <laughs> <laughs> you got Dahmer. Yeah. You got the Grunky Twins, if you've ever seen them. They were two, uh, uh, I think they were 17 or 18, and they, those two and a friend tried to dig up the body of a recently deceased um, girl who died in a car crash, but I think they were caught Ooh. before. They actually stopped at a Walmart to get condoms before they went to the grave. Oh. So, yeah. That's, That's a different strange. kind of protection than I would have thought of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is nasty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, I mean, again, this is one of those things where it's because there's no consent uh, and because mm-hmm. there's that innate, I don't, you know, maybe this is worth a question. Is there any culture in the world that we know of where necrophilia is not considered disgusting or distasteful? I don't, boy, that's a tough one. Um, it's out of scope yeah. for what you've researched here. I don't, I, you know, but I, I certainly don't recall. I, We're and thinking there's, about it. Yeah, yeah. Even if going back to the ancient world, it was pr- seen as pretty disreputable. Um, for instance, in Herodotus talks about uh, Egyptians, when they would have a loved one die, they would sometimes not take it to the priest for mummifications for a few days because they were afraid of necrophilia occurring. Yikes. Ooh. Yeah. So it was a, it was a serious um, 
topic on the minds of people. Um, they also would be really nervous about transporting bodies on sea voyages because sailors had a pretty bad reputation. You know, you really don't know how rumors begin. Well, I, I was a sailor, so, mm, yeah. <laughs> Some of that's probably well-deserved. <laughs> I'll stay agnostic. <laughs> So we thought we'd delve into some cases. So you've got uh, fiction, you've got real life. Let's begin with uh, some fiction, cinema, literature. Sure. This topic's treated a lot, and you could tell us a bit about that and what our fascination is with the topic as well. Sure. Well, it's really strange. You see um, necrophilia in comedies, I think, just as much as horror. There's a scene in Clerks. There's a scene in Weekend at Bernie's. There is, yes. Yes. Yeah. And in both of those cases, uh, they're male corpses and, and female living women, and they don't know. So it, it really stretches. How could you not? <laughs> exactly. The lack of movement, the lack of heartbeat, and really the limits of well, rigor mortis. Now that you say that, This is uh, a fit, more of a physiological question than a psychological one, but do dead people normally maintain an erection sufficient for penetration? I mean, I thought that there was sort of like that that sort of uh, firmness was derived from blood pressure. I guess there are other liquids that could become under pressure <laughs> through the decomposition. This is really nasty to consult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I honestly don't know the cases. answer to that. Yeah. Um, but um, people that un underwent hanging would um, demonstrate erections yeah, and orgasm. Yeah. Or, yeah, or an ejaculate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think they would, that would stay for a time afterwards, but I can't, I can't see it. I've, I've never actually witnessed one. So I have not don't want to, but uh, it's yeah. certainly uh, yeah. the, yeah. the, the ejaculation of hung men yes. is part of the recipe for making a homunculus and for, uh, there was another. Oh, that's right. There was another. Yeah. Uh, we just talked about it in our Hausgeister episode. There was another. It was recently back in episode 299 that we were discussing the very common folk belief that mandrake roots could be found or cultivated at the base of a gibbet where a hanged man had dripped his ejaculate on the ground post-mortem. I tried to find out more about how universal this folklore was, but honestly... It's a grim sort of research, and for my own mental health, I do like to set boundaries on how deep I dive on topics around death and criminal psychology. One bit of weirdness I ran across was that at least a few websites attest to the reality of postmortem ejaculation, and they referred to it as angel lust. And that sounded weird and old and mysterious, but on doing a little research, I couldn't find any references to that phrasing until at least the year 2000, when it began showing up in various occult texts, specifically around the folklore of Mandrake. So it's probably a new name that sounds old for a very old thing. Folklore around hangings is vast and deep and tragic, and the folklore is usually more fun to talk about than the mundane horror that's the practice itself. But the seed of a dead man generating a plant that's shaped like a human is not the weirdest thing I've heard around hangings. But that's all we can cover today. If you want to hear more about those things, go listen to our Cures of the Mummy's Tomb episode or our episode on alchemy and the homunculus if you want to hear more about that folklore. Not critical, but but it was known, and people used uh, corpse parts for magic and home, you know, home mm -hmm. remedies and that sort of thing. So, you know, when yeah. when the hangings were more common, the sort of there was a lot of peripheral uh, behaviors in culture that have now gone away, mm -hmm. probably yeah, for oh, the sure. best. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they used to use blood of gladiators, I think, to try to treat leprosy, too. Yeah, and the sweat of gladiators yeah. was sold as an aphrodisiac, yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, Russell Crowe. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he probably uh, could still sell his sweat. Yeah, gross. <laughs> okay. <laughs> probably could. Yeah, so it's it's bizarre that it's a thing in comedy, but it's certainly in horror yes. and other genres. Yes, it's rarely the main topic. I was—I only really f was able to find two movies that focused on it. it. The way I describe it, it's used like a strong seasoning, like Marmite in British food or asafoetida in Indian cuisine. You know, mm -hmm. a little necrophilia <laughs> goes a long way. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the opening scene of O Tension, High Tension, in the French movie. 
Uh, you see it in the Firefly trilogy, at least the first two. Um, but yeah, they're too gruesome. <laughs> the first one was actually made before the Berlin Wall fell, in, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, called Necromantic, and it is a film about <laughs> necrophilia. So it follows this um, EMT and his girlfriend who are obsessed with dead bodies. And so he secures bodies for his, he and his girlfriend to have sex with. And uh, he loses his job. And so his girlfriend then leaves him for a more successful necrophile, I guess. And then after some more plot and loose, loose on the plot, he ends up committing suicide. And the last scene shows a woman in high heels with a, a shovel digging up his body. So you have sort of the uh, necrophilic circle of death. Um, oh. So Brian, you, you watched all of these for research purposes. Yes. I, I wish I wouldn't have watched that one. I actually had to watch it twice speed some of the time. Yikes. Uh, I understand. <laughs> I mean, there are it movies that are bad. just designed to shock, like uh, the Human Centipede, for example. Yeah, and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. I, I, Necromantic was a bit hard to say. They also have a scene where they, they killed a rabbit and skinned it, and it was not a stunt rabbit. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, they did that I in – I uh, appreciate that. What was that? <laughs> That Michael Moore, attraction. the Michael Moore film, the they were like literally killing rabbits on the screen. Roger and me, yeah, in Roger and me, one of the people just starts killing rabbits right there in the middle of the movie. Whoa, hey, whoa, hey, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I watched that. I don't remember it anyway. Limited <laughs> use, like limited movies, but I mean it's there. I mean, and you also talk about some of the sort mm-hmm. of the, not exactly reverse, but I mean. In a movie, the dead people can sometimes get up and do things, and, and that includes sexual assault and all sorts of things. And famously, the uh, the uh, uh, Reanimator movie has one yes. of the most weird and uh, golly, that's uh, was that David Gale? I think is the actor, and he's like and he's a fine like a stage actor. <laughs> he's in this movie, and you're like. No, 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 no. <laughs> like just it's it's still horrific and taboo and disturbing now. And it's like, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like I, I've been hesitant to show that to my kids. And it's like I enjoy the movie, but that scene is just woof, over the top. It's it's so darkly funny. It really is. It really is. <laughs> Lots of wordplay, too. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I guess, yeah, that's why it's just in small small pieces that they treat this topic and just be too much otherwise. Yes. And then there's there's a, a slew of movies that uh, that talk about what we would call opportunistic necrophiles. So these are, you know, otherwise normal people who wouldn't necessarily seek out a dead body to sleep with. But if they find one, they come across one by chance that they're attracted to. Well, they might partake. So um, you've got Dead Girl which is uh, a couple of high school kids go to this abandoned mental institution and they they go through the labyrinthine facilities and they come upon this locked room. They break in, they find uh, a zombie on a gurney, a young girl. And so one of them, uh, they both decide to keep her and not tell anybody because, you know, 
teenage boys are really known for the gray judgment. Mm -hmm. And one of them starts um, uh, abusing the corpse and the other one keeps a secret. And uh, yeah, the scene, the, the movie kind of develops from there and goes in directions you can probably predict involving bites mm -hmm. and transmissions, but it's a, you know, it's an enjoyable film. Not the best. It's not like high, <laughs> high art, but you know, it, it's, it's way easier to watch than necromantic. Yeah. Well, that uh, raises a question for me. You talk about opportunistic necrophilia, which is a, a, a disconcerting term, but it makes me want to ask how common or how rare is necrophilia in general? We really don't know. Um, we assume it's more prevalent in men just because men, more, far more men get arrested for it, but there are legitimate <laughs> cases of female necrophilia. So maybe they're just better at talking their way out of the cop, you know, the cops arresting them. Yeah. I don't know. But mm. yeah, I mean, Karen Greenlee is one of the most famous cases of necrophilia from the uh, late seventies and she was female. Um, there was a, a case of uh, false accusation of necrophilia. There was a case in Ohio, a guy named David Steffen broke into a house when he thought nobody was home. And unfortunately, um, the family's daughter was there. He attempted to rape her, but he, he couldn't and he killed her. And at the trial, they uh, accused him of not only murder, but necrophilia because they found DNA. And he swore up and down that it wasn't that he never did it. But who's going to take the word of a murder and attempted rapist, right? So he was convicted for that. Yeah. Turns out years later, um, with the advent of uh, sorry, with the advent of DNA, they just had a sample of, of semen. But they they were able to run a DNA test. They found out it was another guy named Kenneth Douglas, who was a mortician. Who the night that the the girl was brought in. He uh, was drunk and smoked crack, and he took the body out and abused it. Yikes. And so oh. he was eventually convicted, um, and rightfully so. Not of necrophilia. Mm. I think it was um, violating the dignity of a corpse, whatever it is on the books mm. in Ohio. Every yeah. state's a bit different with, with this. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we had a big case here in Georgia where it wasn't necrophilia, but a mortician who ran a, a, a crematorium just gave up, like just, just gave up, like clearly was going through some things and stopped processing the dead people. And then they were just piled up all over his like farm property and everywhere. Like, you know, and it's the crime is, you know, you've disrespected the dead. You've mistreated the dead. People want, to have, uh, you know, uh, honor and dignity for their deceased and that sort of thing. And, and all that's lacking. And I imagine that the that's traumatic enough for a family. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I think adding on to it now, you find out that your loved ones were also violated sexually. That's yes. that's got to be disturbing. You know, I, yeah. I and it's 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 so it's so strange. They're beyond caring, but it's they're not beyond your caring. Sure. Oh, yeah, I yeah, mean, those who are left behind. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the least you can hope for is a dignity in death you might not have had in life. Yeah. And the idea of somebody violating your eternal repose is just ghastly. Mm. Yeah. It, it is. And so now we're talking about real life cases. Uh, even though it's so tabooed, there have been real life cases. And you talk about some from history. You mentioned Jack the Ripper uh, mm -hmm. and then Karen Greenlee. I remember that being splashed across the internet in the in the 90s oh, yeah. um that the interview that she did and uh, talking about her experiences and uh and then ted bundy and and others could you tell us about some of these cases because again i think jack the ripper i didn't think of it in terms of necrophilia but then with you mentioning that case i thought well of course it was yeah, well, he he. We think he was a subtype of necrophiliacs uh, that we would call necromutilomaniacs, which is quite a mouthful of a term. But these are people who derive sexual gratification not from copulating with the corpses, but from mutilating them. And some of the most famous cases throughout history are are necromutilomaniacs. So, uh, the one that is probably the most shocking that people really don't know about is a guy named Gilles de Ray. So Gilles de Ray was one time Marshal of France, amazingly wealthy, and this is where it gets shocking, really good friends with Joan of Arc. Yeah, I'm not, not a connection kidding. you would 
Yes. Mike. He was one of the few people who wanted to go um, when she was kidnapped by the English and go get her. But he, uh, he, he couldn't get enough support. So um, what he did when he retired from military life, he decided to become a playwright and he drank a lot of wine. And he was not a very good playwright. And he would put on these extravagant shows where he would outfit all the costumes just for one night only, throw them away get an entire new set of costumes for the next showing. So he squandered his fortune, and then he decided to turn to magic and sorcery to try to get his fortune back. So he hooked up with a number of uh, supposed sorcerers, and he came upon one guy, an Italian guy named Perlotti. I think that's how you pronounce it. And so Perlotti worked with them, and they really got along splendidly. But they weren't getting the money back. Um, So Perlotti proposed, um, you know, what we really need to do is uh, kill a child. I I think, you know, I wasn't there, uh, and there's very little documentation of this, but I'm guessing it was probably like, yeah, well, he'll see I can't do it, you know. I could do it. I have the power, but he won't. He won't have the will, for lack of a better term, to do this. Turns out Prelati was wrong. So uh, he started killing children, and he found out that he liked it. And he would um, hold really gruesome beauty pageants where he would take the heads of children, put makeup on them, and figure out which ones were the most beautiful. And since he was a noble, really rich guy, had multiple estates, at one of his castles, I believe, Mashkul, um, one of his castles, his brother was coming to visit, so he needed to get the bodies out. So there was testimony taken at his trial where he freely confessed without torture, I might add, um, where they boxed up all these bodies and moved them to another castle. Um, so we're talking a number of, of bodies. Uh, some people go so far as to say like uh, one to two hundred yeah, it reminded and, me of the Bathory or uh, yes, Batory case. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. They were very, very similar. And I imagine there's probably been a lot of questions about did all this really happen? But at mm-hmm. least the trial records. I mean, the fact that he confessed without torture confessed. is yeah. pretty damning. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like that's wild. It's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, what, Alan Dershowitz actually did an analysis of the trial. He got all the records, and he he's of the opinion, as am I, that uh, Gilles was get, guilty. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's a trip. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's hard, you know, going back that far. You don't know what's a witch hunt and what's real. But well, exactly. Um, with, yeah. With both yeah. Gilles and Bathory, I'm of the opinion they both did it. I, I think the numbers are not as high. Like for Bathory, I don't think she killed 650 people. It's, I would. It's, I'd go 100. It's weird because the the uh, <laughs> high it, enough in those historical cases. The uh, I think there's a tendency for modern people to think that life was cheap back then that there would have been little consequence to, say, killing peasants, for example, if you were a nobleman. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the records suggest that, no, no, life was actually precious. <laughs> they were still, I mean, yes, you could get a lot away with a lot, but not everything. Mm-hmm. There's there's still, people mm-hmm. still cared about their families. People still loved their families, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's sure. uh, it, it, yeah, being demonized for centuries as the consequence of your crimes, I think that's the... <laughs> That's the inevitable outcome, you know, so. (laughs) But how scary is it that we honestly don't know? We can make informed guesses, but you could either be completely framed or kill 650 people in sadistic sexual ways. And and there's a political side to all this, too, obviously. The, you know, the, uh, and think of, um, you know. Especially for Bathory, that that was. Well, right, exactly. Yeah, I was also thinking here of uh, uh, Vlad Dracul, you know. uh, Oh, (laughs) It's like, uh, uh, if you are guarding against the Turks, you you know, you're a military hero. Uh, But if you're burning uh, peasants alive on your property, you're a villain. So it's just, you know, it's kind of all over the place depending on your perspective so yes mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. certainly yes. memorable I, I have a lot about vlad i even um went to where he was born and um maybe i'll talk about that the next time I'm on the monster talk but oh, i got cool. to see the yes. only existing picture of vlad the second vlad's dad it's in a restaurant in sigiswara romania <laughs> that's so neat that's wow. so neat. <laughs> cool it's a, is, is he rocking a good mustache too 
Oh, he has quite a handsome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's incredible. Run in the family. And we'll, yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about that in a, another episode. We've still got a few more questions that we wanted to ask as well. Yeah. So with ne- everything you always is... wanted to know about necrophilia, but we're afraid to ask. Go for it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so here's a big question. Is there a treatment for this? Is there a treatment for this? Well, uh, there's. You're, you're going to be shocked to learn there's not been a single randomized controlled trial in necrophilia. What? What? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Why not? NIMH has the priorities are But they, they've got all those college kids <laughs> ready for those questions, right? <laughs> yep. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, the treatments really, it's kind of like anything else. The necrophile would have to really want to change. And it would depend, um, you know, my approach, if I was treating a necrophile, I've never actually treated one. I've, I've had people disclose some pretty dark stuff to me, but including zoophilia, but not necrophilia. Oh. Hmm. But um, so if you were a behavior therapist, you'd probably use some aversive conditioning. This has been used in the past. In, in case studies, it's, it's kind of mixed whether it works or not. But so for aversive conditioning, you'd present them with pictures of dead bodies and you'd pair that with something they didn't like. So it could be an electric shock, could or be shaking you know, some change um, in a can or squirting them with sprays. Or, or, yeah. Oh, no, that's cats. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. sorry. <laughs> cats, necrophiles. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. No, but seriously, um, that, like, that, that's inter- that, that, that sort of creating the association of discomfort with the thing that they're fascinated and, and fixated on. Yeah. Yes. And that's therapy or. Yep, exactly. And and that's one of the etiology proposed etiologies for this is that there's sort of a, a chance connection between death and sexuality that, you know, one pairing of that it'd be extinguished. But if if you were to incorporate that into your fantasy life, so let's say, you know, you had a chance pairing of death with with, with sex and then you fantasize about the next time. Matt, orgasm's a very powerful reinforcer. It's actually a positive and negative reinforcer because arousal is considered to be an aversive state. So removing arousal is negative reinforcement. And then orgasm is a positive reinforcement because it's pleasurable. So you've really when you're when you're pairing things in your mind in your fantasy life, you have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of yep. a lot of behaviors kind of start that way. And if you look in the history of the uh, necrophiles, exactly, they escalate. So um, Francois Bertrand, who was one of the most famous French necrophiles, he started out masturbating when he was really young, even before puberty. And he would have very elaborate fantasies of a hair of a woman that he would have sex with, and then he would kill them and mutilate their bodies. And so he started that just in fantasy, just in fantasy. And then... I believe when he was in his 20s, he was walking through a cemetery in Paris when he was already a military man and came chanced upon a freshly uh, dug grave. And he dug it up, I think, with his bare hands. And there were other people in the cemetery and he mutilated it. And he didn't stop there. He kept doing it over and over again. And eventually he um, escalated to act, having sex with a corpse. So... We have to be very Ooh. careful what we reinforce when we're it's having true. sex with yeah. ourselves or other people. Yeah. In in your chapter, you talk about one aspect of necrophilia that it actually made me feel a little bit sympathetic. That 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 what they really want is a no judgment, you know, no shame sexual encounter where you know it's they're the entire controller, like the other person is entirely passive. Yeah. Exactly. Obviously, that can't account for all of this because when people are chopping other people up and achieving orgasm through that process, that implies there's a little more going on. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. But yeah. but if, if, if that if if that were the most innocuous version, you know, I could see where they might be more able to be treated. You know, not just through uh, creating an aversion to seeing corpses, but maybe mm-hmm. if they got into a healthy relationship where the Maybe the person agrees to be very still at first, but slowly begins to move 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Building up a, to a that. big lousy talk, yeah. you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, and other treatments you could use a contemporary form of psychodynamic therapy to try to then decouple the the sex and death at a sort of more emotional and meaning level. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of necrophiles, they're a little different than you'd think. So uh, I think a lot of people would think they all have schizophrenia. It's not the case. In one fairly large sample, I think only 11% had some form of psychosis. Um, but a number of them wow. struggled with substance abuse. Uh, a, a good chunk had one or more diagnosed personality disorders. They had anxiety and depression. If you look at their early history, they weren't great. You see lots of histories of abuse, neglect, really dominating caregivers. And in some, you see legitimate brain trauma. Uh, the temporal lobe, le getting lesions there or injuries there seem to be um, pretty important. But I, you know, the upbringing and the brain trauma, they're clearly insufficient, right? Because there are a lot of people that have terrible upbringings that don't sleep yep. with corpses. There are a lot yep. of people who have traumatic brain injuries that don't do that. So something else seems important. And I think that's where fantasy comes into play. And you brought up, uh, Blake, feelings of inadequacy. You see that in the histories of serial killers who engaged in necrophilia. So I'm thinking of Andrei Chikatilo from uh, the Rostov Ripper from Russia and Edmund Kemper, who's probably the highest IQ necrophile with a 145, which is three standard deviations above the mean. So he's pretty bright mm. guy. But yeah, neither of those guys uh, were psychotic. Uh, I think Andre Chikatilo had a bit of a break before he was executed, but. Right, but this just doesn't happen in a vacuum then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and sadly for these these folks, there was no one along the way to kind of to pick up on the fact that they were going into really dark places in their sex lives or, um, you know, to to sort of check out. It's so hard, but, you know, when things are going on in fantasy, but you would think somewhere along the way they'd share something with others to at least just check in. Is this normal? Is this not normal? And, uh, you know, I don't well, think they can help. It, it does seem to be very much a compulsion and obsession. Is 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 it tied mm. to OCD type behavior at all or is that just – me reading into um, it not that i've seen but really anything sexual kind of anything sexual that sort of is just reinforced over and over again can become compulsive yeah and and there are some real almost superhuman feats that people get to they get so worked up so there's several cases francois bertrand was one of them where they become impervious to pain so francois bertrand was able to swim across the river in france in january and to get to the cemetery he wanted to go to and dug up the, the corpse with his bare hands and bleeding. And uh, yeah, so th they get almost a frenzy when they're trying to uh, to uh, meet their necrophilic need. And then sometimes what happens is they'll enter this coma-like slumber after the act is done. There are a couple cases where people are awakened the next night by the cops and they were sleeping next to the corpse. And they completely slept like 12 hours. <laughs> wow. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think uh, we're getting to that point where we should start to wind down. Um, but you talk in the, the chapter about uh, necrophilia in the animal kingdom too. Yeah. So not only, not only people, but uh, other animals. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. It's, it's really disturbing because some of the animals that are the biggest offenders are actually pretty cute. So um, uh -oh. penguins, got to say, they've been suppressing knowledge of penguin necrophilia for almost 100 years. <laughs> the early explorers that were up there watching them, uh, they noticed it and they uh, would sometimes share it with their other scientist friends, but they would keep it out of the public eye. Birds wow. in general, um, you see Ducks, we all know, have pretty disturbing sex lives from a human yes, perspective. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, crows. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic. Uh, crows do yeah. as well. They'll sometimes copulate with pigeons <laughs> that are dead. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned kangaroos as well. I I'm so yes. ashamed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> kangaroos, sea otters, squ squirrels. Squirrels are probably my spirit animals, so that's pretty disturbing. I think uh, we've covered just about everything that, that we wanted to cover and things that we didn't want to cover Yeah, I as mean, well. we'll be able to use at least 20 minutes of this for sure, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've reduced our shows to about 30, 40 we minutes. We have, but, yeah. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, Brian, we want to know what is next for you. What are, what are you working on 
Yeah. Well, uh, I'm waiting for the book to be released on October 3rd. I've got a few talks lined up. Um, so I'm giving a talk for Raccio in Bulgaria, a popular science organization. I'm giving nice. at least three talks for skeptics in the pub in the UK on the 3rd, the 4th, and the 5th of October. Um, doing something for National Capital Area Skeptics, I think, on the 23rd, 21st, and then doing some other talks. So I'll be I'll be out there. Selling the book. If people want to get in touch with you to have you talk with their group or or whatever, how would they get in touch with you? I'm very easy to find. Google my name. You can go to my website, briansharpless.com. My email is basharpless at gmail.com. We'll put links in the show notes. Great. And I have uh, lists of all my talks in my website, so you can see where I'll be. And I think you and I were talking uh, on Twitter about you coming back on I think closer to the time that the book's coming out as well. I would love to for a Halloween-ish episode, yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. We've moved into seasons, right? So we're we're doing this is actually our second season. <laughs> this is crazy, but I mean we've been just doing numbers. And it's like we got we and we're three hundred episodes in now, and it's like I thought maybe we should do seasons. So uh, we're I'm flipping the seasons right around uh, Halloween. That's when. Uh, so I'm gonna Halloween oh, to cool. Halloween is our season now. That's so I'm excited. Oh, okay, yeah. nice. Uh, now I know. Anyway, Brian, it, as always, <laughs> it's great to hear from you, and I, I love yes. I love the fact that you've you know been listening to the show for a long time and participated for a long time, and mm-hmm. this yeah. book's right up our listeners' alley. I think they'll get a kick out of this. So. Uh, I think you'll like and it, and we look forward to talking to you again. Awesome! Absolutely. Cheers, Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Brian Sharpless about a topic straight out of his upcoming book, Monsters on the Couch, which will look at the psychological conditions that might have inspired many of our well-known monsters. That book will be out in October, but it's available for pre-order now. You can check the show notes or go to Amazon.com and look for Brian Sharpless. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for making our show a part of your listening life. been a Monster House presentation.